God, this morning, before we climb into the Word together as a family, I want to pray for uh, the family that's nearby in Commerce, a close family, Commerce Community Church. I want to pray for David and uh, Whitney. I want to pray for their worship, Lord, first of all. Packing the word week by week as we journey through the wilderness on our way to the promised land with the people. I just pray that he is uh, overwhelmed with worship and with the gospel and amazed by your grace. I pray that that is um, resulting in consistent worship with his wife and gentleness toward her. I pray that he is uh, showing his, his um, son what it looks like or what the gospel looks like and the way he loves his wife and how Christ has loved the church. Lord, we also want to pray for their worship. Lord, we pray for this, this church and commerce, that they are enjoying you. pray that you will guard David and uh, liberate him from a desire to please everyone and to tickle ears and to, uh, to be received with uh, uh, open arms by everybody. I pray that you will liberate him from that, that he will most of all be true that he'll most of all be oriented in your direction. He'll be satisfied with you, and he'll be an obedient um, proclaimer of truth. Uh, Lord, we pray that the church, too, will follow that pursuit and that this uh, Commerce Community Church, these brothers and sisters, close brothers and sisters, will enjoy you. pray that it transforms marriages and families and uh, worldviews and identities and life. We pray that all that for, for us as well this morning. We pray for true and rich engagement in your word. Pray that we'll be too liberated from a desire to make everybody happy and a desire to be um, popular or um, applauded by the world, but that we can be most of all uh, satisfied with you, that we can have a deep fear and joy and comfort of you and in you and that that'll be contagious for those uh, those of uh, those who are yours uh, we pray these things in Christ's name amen we're in John chapter 15 you can go ahead and turn there I actually had one sermon that was going to have two parts this morning, and it turns out we're going to have one sermon with one part and the final part next week. There are two questions that have sort of been developing for me as we've been studying being hated by the world. And one question is, what does it mean if we don't really experience hatred by the world? It's got to be a question that some of you, and maybe all of us to some degree, have kind of been wrestling with. I'm not sure I'm necessarily hated by anybody or any part of the world for Christ's sake, what does that mean? That's where we're going to go today and where I'd planned on going the second part of this morning's message was how do we respond if and when we are hated by the world and that's where we're going to go next week. We're going to climb right into our passage in John chapter 15 verse 18. Christ is speaking with his 11 on the night before he's crucified. He says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is telling his eleven that by nature of their citizenship in a contrary kingdom that they will be hated. And there's two important verbs here. One is know it, and the second is remember it. Know that I was hated first, and remember the word that I told you, that you are one of my servants, and you're going to be hated just like your master is hated. He's essentially saying because you're a foreigner, and you're not of this world, you're going to be hated. You're going to be hated because you're chosen out of this world. You're going to be hated because you serve a different master, a persecuted, hated master. And a servant is not better than his master. He'll experience what his master experiences. You'll be hated because you bear a different name. And you, like your master, will be hated without a cause. It's a question that I've been wrestling with, and it's sort of a diagnostic handling of this passage where you ask the question, what does it mean if I haven't and don't experience hatred of the world? If he's speaking to his 11, is something different now, 2,000 years later? Is he only speaking to his 11, or is he potentially speaking to all believers over the ages? That would include us now, 2,000 years later. It's a question worth considering. What does it mean if I have it and don't experience the hatred of the world? This is a tough question that we're going to explore this morning. Is it possible to be a foreigner, not of this world, to be chosen out of this world, to serve him as master, to bear his name, and yet not be hated without a cause? Is it possible to be all those things and not be hated without a cause? Some ways it could be possible as if our world is different than Abel's. You know, Abel was hated without a cause by his brother, the first murder, first brother's quarrel that turned into murder. If our world is any different from Abel's, then maybe we could expect that we could be all those things and yet not hated without a cause. Or we consider possibly that maybe our world is different from Noah's. That maybe before the flood, people were different than they are now. Unfortunately, after the flood, as God is making this covenant with man, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I wish it would have said was. But maybe times are different now. Maybe they're different from Noah's time. Maybe they're different from Sarah's time, hated by Hagar. Maybe they're different than Isaac's time, hated by Ishmael. Or Jacob's time, hated by Esau. Or Joseph's time, hated by his brothers and hated by Potiphar's wife and Potiphar. Maybe times are different than David's time where he's hated by Saul. Or Daniel's time where he's hated by satraps, his workmates. Maybe times are different now than they were in John the Baptist's time where he's hated by Herodias. Maybe times are different now than the blind man's time where he's hated by the religious establishment. 
Maybe times are different now than Stephen's time where he's hated and stoned to death, or James' time, or Paul's, or Antipas' time, or Polycarp's time, or Ignatius' time. Maybe times are different now than they were in Justin's time, or Blandina's time, or William Dindale's, Tyndale's time, possibly Jim Elliott's time. Maybe things are different now. Maybe they're different than Nate Saint's time. Hopefully through a sampling, hopefully you got a sense where I was going with that, and through a sampling over the ages of believers over the ages, of faithful people over the ages, you can see that there are Hades over the course of how many thousands of years there? 5,000, maybe more. I don't know that our times are any different. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says there's nothing new under under the sun, and I don't think that apparently from what we can see from our Bibles that today's any different than it was then. I'd like to rule out the possibility that we're not going to be hated now because times are different, but it doesn't seem to be. There are plenty of examples on both sides of the cross of being hated by the world for God's sake. Hopefully we can rule out time But maybe we could possibly be all these things. We could be a foreigner, not of this world. Maybe we could be one of his chosen people. Maybe we could serve him as master and bear his name and not be hated without a cause because it's a geographic issue. Maybe it's a different geographic context. I think if there's any room for consideration, it would be this one. Maybe we're in a little pocket. I'm being facetious here. A little pocket of peace and holiness and happiness here in Greenville. I think there is some little micro possibility, micro credibility and validity to this geographic issue because chances are you will be treated very differently if you speak in Christ, if you share gospel, if you proclaim the greatness of God in Greenville or in Libya. I think there is room for some consideration in geography. But possibly the hatred just taking a different form. Maybe in Libya, it's a long sword. Maybe in Greenville, it's being excluded or being hated or being shunned or spurned or slandered. Maybe if you've never been or are not hated for Christ's sake, maybe there's some geographic issues, but probably not. Seems that our times are no different. And even factoring in geography, it doesn't seem like things are any different now than they were for all these Hades that we mentioned at the very beginning. Maybe and likely our world hates Christ and his message just as passionately as Jerusalem did 2,000 years ago. As Jerusalem did, the epicenter of God's chosen people. Maybe we're not hated by the world because, tough question to consider, maybe we have not or are not being what he's called us to be. If you've not experienced hatred by the world for Christ's sake, maybe you're not doing or being what you should be for Christ's sake. It's a question worth examining. Look at John chapter 7, verse 7. It's a diagnostic uh, instrument here that's going to be helpful for us to consider as we're going to look at a couple people in the next few minutes. John chapter 7, verse 7, is earlier in the ministry 
earlier in Christ's earthly ministry. It's earlier in the time period where he's walking with these 11, 12 at that point. And he tells them, he shares with them these words. He says, uh, the world cannot hate you. Now, if you're paying attention and you look over there in John chapter 15, you go, wait a second. He's saying, you're going to be hated for my sake. At this point, he's saying the world cannot hate you. You could imply, connecting John chapter 15, the world cannot hate you yet. It's going to, but as for now, the world cannot hate you. But let me show you why it hates me, Christ goes on to say. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. An express ticket to being hated is to testify about the world that its works are evil. Christ was hated for speaking the truth in the dark corners through sermons, through meals. How many people did he sit and dine with? Through confrontations, through rebukes, through admonishment, through miracles, just through his life. He was hated for speaking truth in the dark corners. And as servants of our master, will we, if we do the same? It seems there's a promise, a promise and assurance that we will know it and remember it. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Christ seems to be speaking <laughs> not only to disciples but to us as he shares this paragraph in Matthew chapter 10 starting in verse 26. So have no fear of them. Speaking of those who uh, don't follow the teaching, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in dark, say in light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Christ seems to be speaking to the man's natural tendency to fear other men and even those who may follow Christ to deny him before other men. Why would he give this charge and this warning in some ways if it were not a possibility? Saying, acknowledge me before men. Why would he say it's a possibility if it's not even a possibility? It seems as if he's addressing the fact that it may even be a likelihood that his people will be silent when we should be salty. It may even be a likelihood that his people will be absent when we could be aromatic and should be aromatic. It seems like it could even be a likelihood that his people will be bashful when we should be bright. I want to be very careful about not deputizing a bunch of Barney Fife's, spiritual Barney Fife's, citizen on patrol, citizen on patrol. 
We're going to deal next week with how do we handle ourselves when we're hated by the world. I don't want to deputize Barney Fife, but I do want us to understand the dynamics here so we can do some, some equipped, informed self-examination. Turn to Acts chapter 7. I want to look at two people. One, I'm just going to bring up some things that we engaged last week with the blind man. But I want to look at two people and we can consider some things that are characteristic of the hated so we can figure out how to self-examine and what we should be looking for in our own lives. The blind man in John chapter 9, don't turn there. I want you in Acts chapter 7 because that's where we're about to go. But remember the blind man in John chapter 9 that we considered last week. He's blind and begging. He's the picture of being destitute. He's sought out. He's healed. He testifies. He's hated. He's rejected. And then he's saved. Christ finds him as he's booted out of the synagogue. Consider the blind man testifying to neighbors, arguing with his neighbors. No, I'm that same guy. <laughs> look, look how familiar. Don't I resemble the same guy that's been doing like this for the last 30 years? Now I'm running around with my eyes open seeing. I'm the same guy. No, that's me. He testifies to his neighbors. He testifies to his family. And we know from that story in John chapter 9 that his family tried to disown him because they're more fearful of the religious decision makers there, the synagogue. He testified before his family. He testified before the religious establishment. And he bowed before his Christ. The blind man is somebody we're going to consider this week and next week. This week, just remembering what we saw in him last week as he's hated by the world. We're going to introduce a new figure today, a man named Stephen. I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 6 just for the sake of kind of getting some context. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they, watch, secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they, watch, set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. It's baloney. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And watch Stephen. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> I'm reading what just happened. It's secretly men, men secretly uh, instigating, men set up as false witnesses, and Stephen has the face of an angel. And the high priest says, are these things so? And Stephen launches off into one of the sweetest sermons in our Bible. One of the sweetest and most complete sermons in our Bible. He starts with Abraham. If I were to do anything different, 
I would have started with creation, but it's hard to beat. He starts with Abraham, which is pretty early in the gospel story. He goes on, develops the story on to Egypt and on to Exodus and on to David and on to Solomon and ends with the temple. And then in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, did so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You will receive, are you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it? Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just look at the dynamics. Look at this sermon. Look at the man. Look at the story that unfolds. We're talking about something that is uber public from the outset. I mean, in the early part here, in, in, in chapter 6, it says that there were people, all these people from all over the area out there, the Roman Empire, disputing with Stephen. Stephen didn't just say, ah, the Christian thing to do would just be silent. I don't want to deal with anybody disputing because that wouldn't be Christian. That's baloney. Stephen, it says in the next verse, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He engaged the dispute. That's one thing he does. If we want to consider what it means to be hated by the world and diagnostically looking at a man who's hated by the world, he engaged the dispute. He also engaged it with something that is uber true. Even true to the point of being Potentially what we might perceive 2,000 years later as harsh, rude. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, how he said that with the face of an angel, I don't know how he did it. But I believe the way the story starts and the way it ends, where he's praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, that this guy somehow said this with gentleness and respect. He's uber true, and he's uber thorough. <laughs> it's, it's an awesome sermon. If you want to know the gospel story, bathe in this one chapter and try and go and find the connecting story and go read it. If you want a good foundation, eat Acts chapter 7. And get to know this story because it is so thorough. Abe to Egypt to Exodus to David to Solomon and ends with temple. It's public. It's true. It's thorough. And it's bold. And he, just like his master, is hated without a cause. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans <clears> 8. <throat> 
Romans chapter 8, verse 16, says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The elders, the other elders and I have had many conversations about the frequency in which or with which we see people wanting assurance. And people want to know that they know that they know that they know that they're saved. I understand it. I mean, I, I want it too. This is a passage on assurance. And let's see what it says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, we have assurance. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, look, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You want assurance? This passage is on assurance. It says, you want assurance? Are you suffering? You suffering for his name's sake in any way? You hated by anybody for the name of Christ? Anybody against you? Anybody slandering you? Anybody shunning you? Anybody scorning you? Anybody gathering rocks for you? The passage on assurance. You want assurance? Don't lean on a prayer that you prayed a thousand years ago. Or a short dip in a cool pool. Those things matter. But lean on, look around. Diagnostically, did anybody hate me for the name of Christ's sake? Man, that's a good diagnostic passage, a difficult passage. Suffering and being hated for his namesake seems to go with the faith. Doesn't seem like there's a suffering-free option. I, I take the Christianity minus suffering option. It doesn't look like it's, it exists. Stones are gathered. Maybe not like in Stephen's case, real physical stones, although that could happen. There are people bearing the name of Christ on the mission field and places like that where that could happen. But stones are gathered today in Greenville in cubicles potentially, neighboring cubicles. They might be gathered in neighborhoods. They might be gathered by other family members. Folks who are just looking to throw rocks at you. They might be gathered by friends, and there may not be blood, but there will be pain if you bear the name of Christ in all places. John chapter 7, verse 7 is a difficult but sweet diagnostic tool. Both of these men, we could say, testified with Jesus about the world that its works were evil. What does it mean if you're not hated by the world? It may mean that you're working hard and maybe even succeeding at pleasing the world. If you're not hated by any, it may mean that you're working really hard at pleasing everybody and not offending anybody. It's almost like being kind of a chameleon. On Sunday mornings, man, we've got Jesus on. But in those dark, difficult corners, you're talking to the other brothers, and you're like, man, you don't understand. Things are different over there. I can't be like this there. We're called to be like this there. We're equipped here to be this there. There's no room for the chameleon Christian. We are not here to make everybody happy. 
We are not here to please everyone. We are here to be true and to enjoy Christ out loud. That's the call for the saint. That's the call for the Christian. I have some liberating news for you. It's going to be difficult news, but it will be liberating. Luke chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there, you can. I know I've got you turning a lot of places this morning, but you can handle it. Liberating news. Luke chapter 12. I'll start in verse 49. Christ says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? You think I've come to give peace on earth? I bet if we did a poll on the street in Greenville and ask people, did Jesus come to give peace on earth? And everybody would say, well, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that how the carol goes? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men? Isn't that how the carol goes? Isn't that from our Bible? In fact, that's, that's a horrible translation. It's from our Bible, but that's not what our Bible says. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 2 about that passage. It says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. It doesn't say peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It makes a great song. But it's not true. Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He says, no, I tell you, but rather division. Christ came to bring division. The fire that he's casting on the earth is the truth and the good news about who he is. And it will bring division. Let me show you some examples. Just listen to this. Just give you a little sample from John, from the book of John, a little sample through the journey. John chapter 6 is a very difficult chapter. Again, don't turn there. Just listen. Jesus has just preached that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood to abide in me. If you're not willing to do that, you have no part of me. And he's got all these people that are following him. And then he goes on to say this very difficult, sounds pretty reformed verse. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. And the next verse says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Division. Division. The next passage, chapter 7, verse 40. This is on the last day of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths remembered their time in the wilderness, crossing the, the wilderness into the promised land, 40 years wandering We know during that time that the rock that they drank from was Christ. And this is on the last day of this feast. That what they did every day of this feast leading up to it, I can't remember how many days it was, seven days or something like that. They would go gather water from the pool of Siloam and they would bring it and pour it in this big basin. And on the last day of the feast, they would take this big basin and they would pour it over the altar. Just imagine this big gobs of water gushing over the altar. And then they would thank God for his provision of water in the wilderness. And it's likely at that moment that Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I mean, he's the rock that they drank from. It's 
oh so appropriate for him to cry out, I'm the rock. If anybody wants to drink, come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, when they heard these words, this fire, this truth, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from from Quinlan? Galilee? You kidding me? From Galilee? I'm not picking on Quinlan. Anybody lives there. It's just easy. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Man, this poignant, potent moment where he says, come drink from me. I'm the rock that your forefathers drank from in the wilderness. And there's a division among them. That's what the truth does. Chapter 8, verse 59, ends a pretty remarkable chapter. I call it the revival gone bad. Chapter 8, verse 30, after he's preached, it says, many believed in him. And then he goes on to say, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they don't like that word free because it implies that they need to be freed from something. And they start arguing with him. These ones who have the little short stubby pencils where they've been scratching their name on the decision card. They look up from their decision card and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're not enslaved to anyone By the end of the chapter, he says, oh, yeah, you are. You're enslaved to sin and your father, the devil. By the end of the chapter, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Man, there you go. The vision. The truth does not always bring kumbaya. And in fact, it likely, often, usually brings the opposite. It brings division. Chapter 9, remember last week, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He's speaking of the blind man. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. It is all through our Bibles, all through this gospel account. Chapter 10, verse 19, and he just preached on being the good shepherd. It says, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them, he said, Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see the separation? You see the division that he said, I, it's what I came for. So you think you will be a servant of the master and not experience the same thing? Are we going to be true servants of the master? Out loud, aromatic, salty, bright servants of the master and not experience division as well those passages should be liberating i've got two more to show you turn to isaiah chapter 8 i want you to see these passages isaiah chapter 8 it sounds like an old testament version of the passage that we read earlier in matthew chapter 10 don't fear man don't fear what he can do to you Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 
says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Don't fear man. <laughs> if you think people are conspiring about you and you know, working behind the scenes to do you in, don't fear them. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. If you want to be concerned about anybody, be concerned about your God. Then he goes on to say, and if you are, he will become a sanctuary. For the one who's Godward oriented, the one that's concerned about where I am relative God, he becomes your sanctuary. But that's not the end of it. He also becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and be taken to the same God, or the same God to some becomes sanctuary. The same God in the same story to some becomes a stumbling block, a trap, a snare, and a stone. If we're servants of our master and we bear this same message, how can our words not have the same impact? Some people will find sanctuary in the good news that we share with them. But to some, it will be a stone of offense. Some, it will be a stumbling block. To some, it will be a trap and a snare. And the last passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to see this one. It's where we're going to end today. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There is the potential to hear that passage in Isaiah chapter 8 and say, well, you know, maybe things were different then. Maybe this side of the cross... We shouldn't experience that. Hopefully, these passages, one right after another, where you see Christ's ministry resulting in division, help you realize that a servant of his master is going to experience that now. But here's a passage written to a church, the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Now, you may not connect this, but I hope you do. Fragrance is connected to worship. Old Testament passages, Levitical passages about fragrance is connected to the sublimation of an offering on the altar where it's sublimated. That's a chemistry term where it becomes of gas. And it enters the nostrils. And I don't mean physical nostrils. It enters... The worship, or becomes worship, Godward. This passage here is speaking of worship. Paul says we are uh, becoming, always, Christ leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. This aroma of worship is spread everywhere. L3, Oak Creek Estates, Rubbermaid, the job site, the law office, Facebook, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we as servants of our master are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing among those who are being saved we smell like life 
Hopefully y'all know what I'm talking about. When you see a brother or sister, you see worship in another family, that just, you're like, man, that smells good. When you hear about John Adele sharing with his family what the bread and the juice represent every Sunday, so much so that Jake, when John is not there, turns to his two little brothers and said, this represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That smells good. That smells like life. To one will be a fragrance of life, but to the other, to the perishing, your fragrance of death to death. Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And this passage has got to be good news to those who are hated. It's got to be good news and encouraging news for those who have a fear of being hated as well, where you realize, you know what? The same aroma to some says that reeks, but to others says that smells good. And the fear is the people of God, for fear of man being non-aromatic, being hypoallergenic, being vanilla, not even vanilla, just neutral. I don't want to offend anybody, so I won't engage a dispute. I won't expose the truth, because Jesus didn't offend anybody, did he? Yes, he did. As servants of the master, how can we expect anything different? Paul points to the reality that if you don't know this, if you don't engage this, what you end up doing is you peddle the word. Pedal is such an ugly word. Pedal, actually, I did some research on the word. What it means is that's what it is. Somebody selling their wares and someone who's selling their wares, presenting all the greatness of it and even ex- exaggerating about all how awesome it is to the point where they're just getting a sale. It sounds a lot like, hey, man, just pray the prayer. I want you to pray the prayer. Please pray the prayer. I will pedal it. I will tailor it however I have to tailor it because I just want you to eat it. Because then maybe we can count another head. That's shameful. I'm ashamed of that among the people of God. I've done it. And I'm ashamed of it. Some things that are true of the peddler. I found this writing by a guy named Petronius. Listen to what he says on peddling. It says, when spongers, that's his word, are trying to get a dinner out of their rich friends, they, the, their main object is to find out what they would most like to hear. The only way they will get what they are after is by winning over their audience. It is the same with a tutor of rhetoric. Like a fisherman, he has to bait his hook with what he knows the little fishes will rise for. Otherwise, he's left on the rocks without a hope of their biting. That's peddling. That's what we do when we're trying to please everybody. That's what we do when we're scared to death about offending anybody. You end up peddling. Just close the deal. Just get the sale. Not realizing that, in fact, if the way is narrow that leads to life and the way that's wide that leads to death, most will say that reeks. Most will say your worship stinks. You're ridiculous. 
You've committed intellectual suicide. You're stupid. I pity you. But some will say, man, that smells good. I love the aroma of that worship. This message this morning is equipping. It's equipping because I guarantee it. Unless you're just really insulated and isolated. And I guess it's possible that you're this insulated and isolated. Most people that I know, though, have a few dark corners in their lives. Little dark environments. Where they have God-appointed opportunities to be salty, bright, and aromatic. They've God-appointed opportunities to be Christ in that setting. It might be work, it might be home, it might be marriage even. It might be family, it might be extended family, it might be friends, it might be Facebook. A place where you are not to be a chameleon, but are appointed and ordained to enjoy Him out loud. And as a result, Christ says, know and remember that you'll be hated just like I was. That's equipping and liberating. Know it and remember it. Let me pray. God, I pray for this people, myself included as part of this people. I pray that we're not so insulated and isolated that we have no areas in our lives, no compartments, our rooms, our contexts where when we're enjoying you that we could be hated. Lord, I pray in fact that we have a desire to seek out those places. Knowing and being liberated by the fact that when we are salty, bright, and aromatic in that setting, when we are the aroma of Christ to you, that some, albeit few, will smell that aroma and say, that smells good. Lord, I pray that you will liberate us from a fear of man that focuses, focuses us, that fixes us on trying to please man with a terrible fear of offending. Lord, I pray we can be liberated from that as we can see ultimately how Christ offended a whole nation. Lord, I pray this sermon is equipping in each of these little scenarios that, that we have, these little dark opportunities. I pray for boldness. I pray for trust in your sovereignty that your people will smell an aroma and will be drawn. Lord, we love you and we trust you. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we prepare to take the supper this morning, I want to go to the Word. It instructs us um, what this is to be. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we get some insight there. 
as Paul is sharing with Corinthians what it's not, and he's talking to them about what they've been doing, uh, that their meal is not the Lord's Supper, because as they eat, it's unto themselves, it's for them. And he goes on to say what it is, and he does that by recounting Jesus' words. So listen to this. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he goes on to say, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I thought about what this is from week to week. You know, it can be a mundane thing. It can be the thing we just go through the motions. It can be worship. It can be a wake-up call, reminder, or it can be none of that. So as we take for this morning, I just I, I'm, I want to pray for this body. First, that um, in the matter of salvation, that we're, we are remembering Christ, His blood shed for our forgiveness, His body broken for us, His righteousness. We just saw in, a few weeks ago, Luke, Luke 18, His righteousness in place of our own. That's our only hope. Uh, this morning. Uh, when we're hated by the world, remember Christ. So let's pray. Father, this morning as uh, we prepare to take this supper, Father, I pray that uh, we are examining ourselves, Father. Father, that we are remembering well. Father, as we have a bite to eat or drink from a cup, Father, we are remembering Christ, your provision, your righteousness, your hope, your grace that helps us persevere, helps us endure hatred for your sake and for your glory. Father, this morning we do this in remembrance of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. One impact of peddling the word might be that all your people know is that it's the fellowship. The church is the fellowship of the loved. 
We're loved by God. Now, is that important to know? <laughs> yeah. But is that all we are? We're not just the fellowship of the loved. We're also the fellowship of the hated. That wouldn't make a good t-shirt. But it's what our Bibles tell us. That goes together. Loved by God, hated by the world. It goes together. One of the outcomes is all you get is fellowship of the loved. Come be part of the fellowship of the loved. Then you don't know what to do when you're hated. (laughs) Peter says, man, don't act like something strange is happening to you. This is part and parcel for who you are. This is what it means. I hope it's been equipping for you. I hope it's been liberating for you. I hope it's maybe too even been challenging for you. You don't have any, you, you may have, man, I'm pretty insulated and isolated. I may need to go find some places where I can be hated for his namesake. Not like Barney Fife, citizen on patrol, but like an out loud aromatic worshiper. Chances are you've got those places anyway. I don't know of anybody that doesn't. So the call is to be Christ in that setting. That's the call. Encourage you in that. Fellowship of the hated, fellowship of the loved. Man, that's for why we raced to, to be together. <laughs> I need to be encouraged by being along with fellow hated, alongside them, and seeing them press on and get right back out there enjoying Christ out loud. A um, little transition here, being hated by the world. Brad Cardwell, come on up here. <laughs> Steve, why don't you and Scott come up here? Scott's already up here. Scott will. Um, Brad, this, is, this morning is the fifth anniversary of Brad Cardwell being an elder at Cross Point. He was um, appointed, ordained as an elder at Cross Point a couple months after Steve and Ron Perone and uh, Jeff Collins were because he was uh, preaching interim uh, over at First Baptist in Greenville. And um, so that's why this is, that's why he's by himself on this this morning, but um, Whenever people ask me about church, you know, people that I don't, I haven't seen for a long time, tell me about your church. I'll tell them about our people and I'll tell them about our leadership. I've never seen anything like the blessing that God's given this people of men that I get to serve alongside and their families. I mean, men that I are closer than brothers and the, these guys are. And um, Brad has, uh, is a treasure as a friend and a treasure as a fellow elder that wisdom that the Lord has provided this body through him in the last five years. I just can't even, can't even describe or explain to you, but it's been rich. Um, a few things that we've got for Brad this morning. We've got a Riata's gift certificate. This is like the most heavenly food in all of the land. <laughs> like the whole land. However you want to quantify that. And Riata's in Fort Worth. And it is cowboy cuisine, which, you know, he's a cowboy, so... He'll, he'll enjoy that. He knows, he knows the food. And then there's a, um, a gift certificate for Embassy Suites uh, for a couple nights there where you guys can get away. You get a little brief um, sabbatical. Lasts the whole two days. <laughs> Scott and I get three months. Brad and Steve get two days. So we really want you to enjoy those two days. And we've got a really cool calfskin ESV Bible that is just a treasure a study Bible uh, that we're presenting to you as well, Brad. And um, we treasure the journey with you. Thankful for it.
I'll close in prayer. We pray for the next five years, whatever the Lord has in store for Brad and his family. Christy, come up here. I don't know if we can wrestle, wrangle Hank up here. We'll just pray for Hank via, <laughs> via the airwaves <laughs> and Lily. God, thank you so much for this family. Thank you so much for the journey together. I uh, love this brother, uh, closer than a brother. Uh, thankful for what you have done and are doing in this family and uh, the worship that we see out loud and aromatic, the aroma of Christ that they are. And uh, it just smells good. It smells like life. I pray that you will just continue to grow them. Whatever you have in store for the next five, I pray for faithfulness and uh, fire and uh, truth. And um, I just love you, Lord, and we uh, just enjoy your surprise grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Y'all have a great day.